All unbelief, all false doctrine is based on those two things. Ignorance and knowing the scriptures and a lack of faith in God. It will always boil down to those two things. People are wrong all the time in their beliefs because they're just like the Sadducees. They neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. They're not familiar with the Bible. The Bible says we are to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But how can you contend for the faith when you don't know the faith? When you don't understand doctrine or theology? This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Let's take our Bibles again this morning and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, if you're not already there, and please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we continue our study through Mark's Gospel. We want to look this morning at verses 18 through 27. The title of the message is God of the Living, because it speaks about the doctrine of the resurrection. Picking up in verse 18, Mark writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and Sadducees came to him, that is to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and he died leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Please be seated and let's ask the Lord for his help. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, which is so clear in affirming the doctrine of the resurrection. We pray that it might strengthen not only our hearts, but also our apologetic testimony and witness to be able to defend the great doctrines of the faith, such as the resurrection. May your spirit guide our study as always. We pray and commit ourselves to you, praying in the precious name of Christ our Savior, we ask it. Amen. In this passage that I just read to us, Jesus um, obviously is questioned by another group of people, namely the Sadducees, as they're identified there in verse 18. They clearly have a wrong view of the resurrection. In fact, we could say it this way, they believed in the impossibility of the resurrection. And as you saw in the words that I read from the pages of Scripture, Jesus forcefully and even sarcastically argues for the absolute certainty of the doctrine of the resurrection. 
This wasn't the first time Jesus did this at the, the miraculous raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And it was clear that preceding that statement by Jesus in verse 24 of John chapter 11, that Martha proves that Old Testament saints had a working knowledge of the resurrection because of her statement. She said that uh, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So all Jews confirm the doctrine of the resurrection. At least most of them, the Sadducees, would have been the exception. Back in chapter 11 and verse 28, Jesus was first asked a question uh, sent by a delegation of the Sanhedrin. By what authority are you doing these things? The authority of Jesus was the issue. And the issue of the resurrection is inextricably tied to the authority of Christ, which is why the Sadducees asked this question. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and they most certainly were threatened because Jesus had claimed that he himself would rise from the dead as well as his followers. Not only that, but if you turn with me just for a moment over to John chapter 5, Jesus addressed his authority in association with the resurrection. In John 5 verse 27, Jesus says he has given him authority, that is Jesus, to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus was the one at the resurrection, the authoritative son of man, who would issue penalties and rewards to, to those who were raised uh, to heaven, those who were raised to be placed in hell. The Bible teaches as a whole the New Testament making it even clearer that saints are resurrected by virtue of their union with Christ. Because the church is united to Christ, believers participate in his resurrection. We are united to Christ in his life. We are united to Christ in his death. Therefore, we are united to Christ in his resurrection. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Romans chapter 6. It is clear that God took humanity upon himself. He became united with his people. He lived and died in our flesh and in our flesh rose again from the dead. So we too would rise with him. First of all, spiritually, as Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 6, but also physically at the end of time. Paul says this, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And of course, you are well aware that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul goes on to explain how Christ's resurrection not only ensures our resurrection, but also how it results in the eternal authority and rule of Christ as victor over all of his enemies is put on full display. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, picking up in verse 20, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. In other words, it will be clear that Christ is king, that Christ is ruling. But the death of Christ really began that process of the inoperation of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that is true. But at the death of Christ, really Satan's power was rendered inoperative. Hebrews says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Through the death of Christ, and obviously following that, the resurrection of Christ, Jesus put in motion the, the, the death of death itself that will take place on the final day when the saints are raised and when the wicked are raised for their judgment. The Bible is clear that because Christ was raised, we too will be raised. The Bible is clear that our resurrection will be like Christ. That is to say, it will be bodily. Paul says this in Romans 8.11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our resurrection will be like Christ. It will be bodily. Not only that, but it will involve immortality. Paul is clear going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. It is bodily, it involves immortality, and it also involves the condition of surety. In Colossians 1 it says that Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Because he was the first raised, the head of the body, so too we will be raised. You can think about it this way. We were united originally with the first Adam, united with him in his sin. And united with him on this earth in that sense. In the life to come, we will be united to the image of Christ in heaven. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that is Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We will be in heaven and we will be like the man of heaven, like Christ. That is the doctrine of the resurrection for saints. But at the same time, Scripture teaches not only the resurrection of the righteous, but also the resurrection of the wicked. We saw that in John 5, 28 and 29. Acts 24.15 says there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Those justified in Christ will be raised. Those not justified in Christ will be raised. Those unjustified sent to hell. Jesus speaks about that. Those justified will have eternal security with Christ 
and God the Father and the Holy Spirit forever in heaven. The point of all of this is that Christ and his authority alone determines the future of all men. Christ, whether you're in him or outside of him, is the sole determining factor of where you will spend eternity. And Jesus was crystal clear about that in John chapter 5. The resurrection had everything to do with Jesus' authority. That's why this passage is very important for you. It is the difference between whether you are forgiven or unforgiven, not forgiven. The difference between whether you're eternally saved or eternally damned. The difference between you, whether you are eternally secure or eternity, eternally lost. Or whether you will go to heaven or whether you will go to hell. is all tied to your understanding of the authority of Christ and also your assertion of the doctrine of the resurrection as it is explicitly laid out, not only in this passage, but also the rest of Scripture. Now, in our text, Mark's statement at the beginning, by identifying the Sadducees, he's identifying um, no apparent break in this onslaught, this devilish onslaught against Jesus. Wave after wave of the enemies of Christ have attacked him, going all the way back to chapter 11 and verse 27, when a delegation of the Sanhedrin made up of the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, asked Jesus by what authority he did these things. And then into chapter 12 and verse 13, as we saw last week, the Pharisees and the Herodians asking Jesus about whether or not they should pay taxes. And now in verse 18, the Sadducees coming after him. Of course, as you remember last week, the Pharisees and the Herodians were trying to trap Jesus related to a political question. But here, the Sadducees want to make Jesus look bad based upon a theological question. And here's basically what they're trying to do. They want to reduce Jesus' authority and influence as a teacher to nothing by embarrassing him for his belief and assertion in the doctrine of the resurrection. That is all they're trying to do. But in doing that, this passage reminds us that it is always right to divide over doctrine, especially doctrine such as the resurrection, a cardinal tenet of the Christian faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What we believe about the resurrection determines whether or not we are truly Christian or not. Denying the supernatural, denying the resurrection is a denial of Christ, it is a denial of the gospel, it is a denial of the Bible, and it is a rejection of God's salvation, an utter and total rejection of Christ himself, who is the authoritative one who can raise you from your deadness and sins and trespasses. This passage is therefore critically important. And the importance of the doctrine of the resurrection is revealed not only in all of the verses that I just rattled off to you in the other parts of Scripture, but in this particular passage, the importance of the doctrine of the resurrection is revealed. And it is revealed in three ways. First of all, we see the selected quorum in verse 18. Second, the strategic question, verses 19 through 23. And third, the sarcastic quips in verses 24 through 27. Know then, first of all, what I want to call the selected quorum, verse 18. Notice your Bibles. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. And then, of course, the rest of the account tells us what that question was. But what I want you to focus on here is the selected quorum. That is, this group of Sadducees hand-selected 
by their own group, by their own party, a certain number of competent men they believed would be able to conduct this sort of sinister investigation, official business of embarrassing Jesus and his belief in the resurrection. As Mark says, the Sadducees came to him with this thought in mind, and Mark notes the fact that they said there was no resurrection. That was true. Who exactly were these Sadducees? Well, they were a faction of Judaism, really coming from the leading families of Judaism, the more worldly families of Judaism, uh, the more rich families of Judaism. Uh, this would have included the priests, businessmen. This was the aristocracy of Judaism. The origins of the Sadducees, really, we don't know exactly when they officially were started as a party of Judaism, but we know they began, or at least we began to see them on the scene in the 2nd century BC during the Maccabean period. Some Bible scholars believe that they derived their name from Zadok, who was a high priest during the days of David and Solomon. I don't know if that's true or not. But what we do know when we study the Old Testament, and particularly the book of Deuteronomy, is that at the beginning days of Israel, it was the priesthood who made up the Sadducees, who were the main teachers of Israel. The main teachers of Israel. It was the priests who taught the people the law of God. But they quickly lost credibility with the people, respect with the people through their massive corruption. And what was supplanted by the teaching of the priests was the tradition of the elders. This was an oral tradition of customs and interpretations and therefore applications of the law of God that was passed down by word of mouth, later on written in the Mishnah. The tradition of the elders began to supplant the teaching of the teachings of the priests. And this frustrated the priests and so Somewhere along the line, though, the Sadducees were formed as a party, as a separate, separate group. And really, they were, at least at the beginning, seen as the more conservative ones because they only held to the first five books of the Bible as being inspired. They rejected the oral tradition. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament. They were a minority, the Sadducees. They were wealthy, snooty, stuck up, disconnected from the normal rank-and-file Jew. In fact, Josephus describes them this way, and I quote, rather boorish in their behavior and in their intercourse with even their peers as rude as aliens. In other words, they didn't know how to deal with people. They were stuck on themselves. If the Pharisees were marked by legalism, the Sadducees were marked by ritualism and ceremonialism. If the Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty, the Sadducees believed in the free will of man. Uh, the Pharisees were like the Calvinists of our day, or the Augustinians of our day. The Sadducees were like the Pelagians or the Arminians. The Pharisees believed in all of the Old Testament, all of the oral tradition. The Sadducees rejected the oral tradition, rejected all of the Old Testament, except the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And not only were the Sadducees marked by ritualism and ceremonialism, but they were also marked by materialism. It was them who conducted the, the business of the temple and all those vendors that sold. Jesus had overturned the tables of the money changers. Those were vendors that were put there by the Sadducees. But as Mark says here in verse 18, the Sadducees did not believe or said there was no resurrection. The Pharisees opposed that 
In fact, they stated later in the Mishnah, whoever denies the resurrection of the dead has no share in the world to come. But it wasn't just the resurrection that the Sadducees denied. Acts 23.8 says that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and there are no angels and no spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So get this, the Sadducees were really not that conservative. Although they acted like they were, they were really more liberal. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in penalties for the wicked after death, rewards for the righteous after death, no supernatural. And really, their question that they eventually ask is rooted in a desire not only to embarrass Jesus and his doctrine of the resurrection, but also to embarrass the Pharisees. The Pharisees had just left with their tail between their legs. Regarding that question, they asked Jesus about taxes. In fact, verse 17 says they marveled at him. They had nothing to say, and they simply left. The Sadducees were very much threatened because they were the wealthy of Israel. They were tight with Rome. And any sort of insurrection would make Rome come crashing down upon them. It would interrupt their temple services, which really meant would interrupt their temple business. And they wouldn't receive all the money that they had received. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 11... We read that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that is the Sanhedrin, together. And they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And Caiaphas was part of that meeting. He was a high priest. All the high priests were Sadducees. They were threatened by the following of Jesus because Jesus' great following threatened their position in society. Threatened their wealth threatened their status. It was the Sadducees, really more of a political party of Israel, who were the ones that brokered deals with Rome, saying that they would keep peace as long as Rome let them worship freely, which for the Sadducees meant, let us conduct our affairs in the temple like we want, our worship, but also let us make some money on the side. The Pharisees hated the Sadducees, but they needed them in order to keep a good relationship with Rome and and also to help destroy Jesus. And so that though they are at odds with the Pharisees, the Sadducees' joint hatred of Jesus encouraged them to take a stab at Jesus, to embarrass him. As verse 18 says, they say there is no resurrection. So they came and asked him a question. And as we'll see, the question was based on the resurrection. Even after Jesus was raised from the dead, by the way, they were hard-hearted. They uh, challenged the apostles in Acts chapter 4 regarding the resurrection, even after the proof that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Their issue was not intellectual. That's what I want you to understand. It was hardness of heart. They rejected the authority of Jesus. They were not true saints. They were not true believers. And although many of the Pharisees weren't either, the Sadducees made the Pharisees look really, really good. There are, in our day, many supposed theologians who deny many of the things the Sadducees denied. There are professing Christians who deny the miracles of the Bible. There are cults that deny the deity of Jesus, the fullness of his deity. There are those who believe uh, that there is no heaven and there is no hell, or at least that there is no hell. God is too loving to have a hell. 
in spite of the fact that the Bible teaches the deity of Jesus, it confirms the supernatural, it confirms there is not only a heaven but also a hell. Many even deny the resurrection. Many Christians will deny that there are rewards for those in heaven because that's quite unfair that God would give rewards. We're all going to be on level ground in heaven. All of these false theologies are rooted in the same central issue and it is simply a lack of a desire to recognize the authority of Jesus and the authority of his word. And I want you to understand this morning before we go any further that this passage is just as much about you as it is about the Sadducees because we are all tempted to disregard God's authority. We are all tempted to read something in God's word and say, oh, that can't be really what it means and I'm going to go in this direction. That is a dangerous road to go down. That is a rejection of the authority of Jesus Christ. And we learn that in this very passage. We also learn how we are to deal, deal with doubters. Those who doubt the cardinal doctrines of the faith. Now, how did Jesus deal with it? Well, he faced his enemies squarely. He faced them head on. He did not pull any punches. And that therefore takes us from the selected quorum in verse 18. Number two to the strategic question in verses 19 through 23. Notice your Bibles. Notice how they address Jesus. Verse 19. Teacher. Teacher. Moses wrote for us that if a man, man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They address Jesus as a teacher. This is not really out of respect for Jesus. If it is, it's feigned respect. It's not genuine. Uh, but the reality is that the Sadducees regarded debating other teachers as virtuous. This is really a way for them to puff the, themselves up. We are teachers and teacher, we are coming to you to have this discussion before all of the people. It's likely they also address Jesus as a teacher because they want to draw attention to the fact that he claimed to be a teacher of God. People affirm that he was a teacher of God and their whole strategy is to embarrass this teacher of God. To show that his doctrine of the resurrection is absolutely ridiculous. It is absolutely absurd. So when they ask this question in verse 19, they're not really seeking an answer. They already have an answer to their question. They're trying to embarrass Jesus. And the actual question actually doesn't even come up until verse 23. The whole thing is preempted and front-loaded with this ridiculous hypothetical scenario based out of the law from the Pentateuch, the only part of the Bible they actually believed in. Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 and 6 whereas verse 19 it, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother this is referred to as many of you know as the leveret law the leveret marriage leveret uh, is derived from the Latin word lever which simply means brother-in-law and the leveret marriage was really not just um, an ancient custom. It was actually in the law of God. It was in Deuteronomy chapter 25. The Sadducees were right in quoting this. The purpose of the leveret marriage was not to promote polygamy because it was only required if a surviving brother was single. He wasn't allowed to divorce his wife and, and marry this uh, sister-in-law of his. That would be polygamy. In fact, um, you didn't even have to be a brother, as in the famous case of Boaz, who 
married his relative Elimelech's widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth. Boaz was not a brother of Elimelech, but he was the next of kin, the one willing, the one able because he was single to marry Ruth, and he did, and the Bible calls him a kinsman redeemer. But here's what you need to understand. Every time the Leveret law was followed, as it's prescribed in Deuteronomy 25 and recited there in verse 19 by the Sadducees, every time the Leveret law was followed, the dead brother's name, memory, and property stayed within the family, within the tribe, within that household. In this sense, the child of the new marriage was considered a descendant not of the living husband, but of the dead husband. As a matter of fact, turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 25, and let's just look at this quickly. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5. Here's the Leveret Law. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. That was the goal, to perpetuate the name of the dead brother, his legacy, his heritage, his land, his name, his memory. And in fact, disobedience to this law was unacceptable. Verse 7, if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of this city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I don't wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face. And she will answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. That was the goal of the Leveret marriage, to build up the brother's house. Furthermore, it may surprise you that the Leveret custom existed before Mosaic law. You're familiar of the story in Genesis 38 of Onan, who was punished by death by God because he was only half obedient. He was willing to marry Tamar, but then he wasted his seed on the ground because he knew that the child uh, that he would have with Tamar would not be considered his own child. It would be considered the, the child of his dead brother Ur, and that was just too much for him. But in all of this, it's important to see God established this law, even prior to Moses, expected this sort of behavior for spiritual goals. And I understand that's difficult to accept on the surface. This seems very strange and, and even immoral. But the Leveret Law did not mean to condone undue sexual appetites. As I said, it was meant to ensure the continuation of the genealogical line. It was meant to ensure the production of a godly seed. It was meant to ensure the preservation of ethnic Israel until the Messiah came. So God's people could be preserved. And indeed, the God-man himself was the product of a Leveret marriage. Because Jesus' own genealogy is found in Ruth. Now, the scenario that they fabricate based upon this law is really ridiculous. We read about it in verses 20 through 22. They could have just spoken about two husbands. A man is married, has no child, dies. So the, the widow marries his brother. He dies, they die, no children, they meet in the resurrection. Whose wife does she belong to? But remember, their strategy is to embarrass Jesus. So they come up with this fabricated, ridiculous scenario. Notice it with me beginning in verse 20. They say, you know the law, God, but there were seven brothers 
The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring, and the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Really, really ridiculous circumstances that would create an awkward situation for the woman in the resurrection life, if resurrection existed, to meet these men in heaven? I mean, whose wife would she be? That's a hypothetical scenario told by the Sadducees. This never happened in the history of Israel. It never would happen. But that leads them to their question. Verse 23. In the resurrection, Jesus, when they rise again, let me ask you, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife, meaning while on earth. Whose wife will she be in heaven? Now on the surface, it does appear quite ridiculous. We have to give it to the Sadducees. They really make this law look absurd. How awkward for the woman and her seven previous husbands to meet in all places heaven and the resurrection. I mean, who's going to determine whose wife she belongs to? But you see, this was the strategy of the Sadducees. Just like the question posed to Jesus by the Pharisees. This question posed by the Sadducees was a debated question all of the time. The tax question was a major issue of the day, politically. But theologically, the Pharisees and the Sadducees always debated about the Leveret Law. It always went back to this because the Sadducees denied the resurrection. And the Pharisees understood it as being a cardinal point to their doctrine. In fact, the Sadducees often won these debates with the Pharisees because the Pharisees had no answer. They also had a wrong view of the resurrection. They said that in the resurrection, defected and diseased bodies would remain the same. They said in the resurrection that all your earthly relationships will remain the same. So they had no answer to the Sadducees. They, they had lost every debate with the Sadducees. The Sadducees are undefeated. Additionally, the Sadducees are using old talking points. They had actually ripped this hypothetical scenario out of a false description of something that never happened. In another resource, there was a story that circulated that spoke about a woman who was married seven times because a demon kept strangling her husbands one right after another in the bedchamber on the wedding night before the opportunity for conception could take place. They didn't even have original arguments. Stealing fables from their own culture to argue with the Pharisees. And so they borrow this story. Again, their strategy, mark it, to set Jesus up to look ridiculous. A similar one of the fable, a man who is married and dies with no children, then six brothers follow him upon the death of the second, marries the widow, dies leaving no children. This happens with all seven brothers until finally the woman herself dies with no child. And they say in verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. You understand that this question is essentially asking this. They're saying to Jesus, since the law about the leverage marriage is communicated by Moses in Deuteronomy 25, and if, as you say, the resurrection is true, then how can the woman in the resurrection state be wife of seven men at one time. Come on, Jesus. Isn't it clear that the only reason Moses gave this law is because Moses himself didn't believe in a future resurrection and therefore this ridiculous scenario would never come about? 
Their strategy was all framed up in this way, setting the scenario up to make Jesus and his beliefs in the resurrection look ridiculous. The Sadducees had won every debate with the Pharisees and they were expecting Jesus to fumble the answer to the question. And not being able to refute the possibility of the scenario, not being able to give an answer to this sort of scenario, Jesus and his authority and his influence as a teacher would be severely diminished. His reputation would be smeared. The problem, of course, is that, first of all, their question assumes that there will be married life in the resurrection, right? They're operating off that assumption. But the fact is, they had created an unsolvable puzzle, a false dilemma. Because the Leverett Law did not create a conundrum for the resurrection state. This is a ridiculous argument. In Latin, it's reductio ad absurdum. That is, a reduction to the absurd. In logic, a reductio ad absurdum argument is an argument that attempts to prove one's basic beliefs about something are false because of the supposed implications or logical consequences as seen as being ridiculous or absurd. And that's what they've done. They've framed Jesus up to make it look like if the resurrection is true and if the Leverett law is true, look at these ridiculous consequences that follow. But as I said, this is a false dilemma. They're using a hypothetical scenario based on God's law to suggest that if God gave the law, then he certainly didn't intend for there to be a resurrection. Because if God intended for there to be a resurrection, then he also created a web of untangled and untangable inconsistencies in the supposed afterlife regarding marriage. What are these poor people to do who have been married more than one time in heaven? All their joy will be sucked away. Very practical issue that hit the heart of everyone in the audience. And Jesus understands what they are trying to do. The Pharisees, they uh, usually answered the debate this way. They said that the first husband had claims on the woman in the future life because all the other brothers were just standing in, in the place, in the place of the brother. But Jesus doesn't answer that way. Jesus takes this debate, listen to this, to another level. Jesus takes this debate in a completely different direction, proving that the doctrine of the resurrection is not what is ridiculous. What is ridiculous is the question. What is ridiculous is that they would, in a sinister way, try to frame Jesus as if they're going to get away with that. So Jesus summarily rebukes them and embarrasses them. We move from the selected quorum, verse 18, and number two, the strategic question, verses 19 through 23, now number three, to the sarcastic quips, verses 24 through 27. Jesus was a master of sarcasm. And he responds with three sarcastic quips to do two things. Number one, to refute the Sadducees' wrong position on the resurrection, and at the same time to defend the orthodox view of the resurrection. Jesus successfully does both, and I hope you can see that. Three sarcastic quips. Notice the first sarcastic quip in verse 24. 
Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? I love that. Jesus doesn't waste any time. He said, Here is the issue. You're wrong. So let's just start at the beginning. You're wrong. Is this not the reason you're wrong? But then he gives reasons. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Notice he bases his argument on the authority of God's word. And the fact, not only are they ignorant of God's word, but they refuse to believe God's word. They refuse to believe in the power of God because God's word says there will be a resurrection. He's not trying to argue some sort of logic that is unnecessary to logic, argue. His logic is based on the presupposition that God's word is authoritative. And really, this is an assertion, not a question. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Literally in the Greek. Is this not the reason you've wandered off track? You've gone astray? I mean, you are just, you've gone out of this world on this issue. You have no clue, Jesus says. He wastes no time telling them they are ignorant about the Bible and that they lack faith. Let me just say this. All unbelief, all false doctrine is based on those two things. Ignorance and knowing the scriptures and a lack of faith in God. It will always boil down to those two things. People are wrong all the time in their beliefs because they're just like the Sadducees. They neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. They're not familiar with the Bible. The Bible says we are to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But how can you contend for the faith when you don't know the faith? When you don't understand doctrine or theology? That's why it's critically important for true Christians to know their Bibles. And to know their Bibles very well. As a matter of fact, Paul said in Acts 20 verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul says, I didn't leave any stone unturned. I preached the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I would go in detail regarding theology to solidify your confidence in the Word so you would know the power of God. Jesus did the same thing to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. Their issue was they didn't know theology. They didn't know doctrine. They didn't know the Scriptures. And so we read in Luke chapter 24, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds, Jesus did, for them to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and die and on the third day rise from the dead. Jesus could argue from the Old Testament regarding the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of everyone else. And these Emmaus Road disciples should have understood that. If they knew the scriptures, they would have. The Sadducees did not know the scriptures. Even the part they claim to be inspired. They're using their own Bible, Deuteronomy 25, to argue there's no resurrection. And Jesus is saying, you're completely wrong, even about the part of the Bible you affirm is inspired. You neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Because if you knew the power of God, Jesus is saying, then you could easily confirm his ability to raise the dead. God did all sorts of powerful things. And that he could raise the dead in a way that marriage and the eternal state was not a condition of happiness. But you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Further, evidence from the Pentateuch actually showed the power of God to raise the dead. Jesus doesn't go into this, but perhaps these verses were on his mind. Maybe even Genesis, which is part of the Pentateuch that they believed in. God 
created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. It's a pretty powerful thing. Sadducees didn't believe God did that. I mean, it's a very powerful thing. Uh, Jesus created the world out of nothing, including the dust of the ground. And then he took that dust of the ground and he formed a man. And then from that man, he put him to sleep and took a rib from him and formed a woman for the man. If God could do this, then surely he can resurrect an already existing body that he already created that returned back to the dust from which he created it. Well, the creation account is in Genesis. It's in the part of the Bible the Sadducees confirmed. Or what about Genesis 5.24? When God took Enoch with him directly into his presence, was this not a prelude to the resurrection? Or, or an illustration, at least, of the resurrection? Or what about the famous story of God commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Abraham believed that if he followed through with that commandment, it is clear to sacrifice Isaac. Go back and read Genesis 22, that God would be able to raise him from the dead. In fact, Hebrews eleven nineteen says that he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And God, in fact, did do this figuratively, Hebrews eleven nineteen says, because Isaac didn't die. He received him back. So the fact was... They not only didn't know the scriptures that they confirmed were inspired, that is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but neither did they know the power of God. Neither did they know all the other passages of scripture that we've even really yet to mention that speak about the resurrection. For example, in Psalm chapter um, 16, we read this, therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. I'm, I'm not going to be in Sheol. I'm not going to be left in Sheol. You won't let your Holy One see corruption. Those were the words of the psalmist from the Old Testament. Or what about Daniel 12 and verse 2, which says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or what about Isaiah 26, 19? Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Or what about Psalm chapter 17, verse 15? As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. The psalmist says, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I mean, that almost sounds like a New Testament verse. Being like God in heaven, which is the promise of our salvation, our, our very glorification. Or what about Psalm 73, a favorite passage of scripture, verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand, God. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you receive me to glory. Whom, I, whom, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, the psalmist says, forever. And what about the, the valley of the vision of dry bones in Ezekiel 37? All of those dead bones that came together and came to life with flesh. I mean, the reality is they did not know the scriptures and they did not know the power of God. They didn't believe all the scriptures taught concerning the resurrection. And I just want to remind you this morning that all unbelief is always based on those two factors. Being ignorant of what the scriptures teach and or not having faith in the power of God to do the supernatural. We are to believe everything the Bible says, no matter how unbelievable it may be. That's what faith is called. 
And faith is a gift from God. True believers have no problem affirming the resurrection, affirming heaven and hell, affirming that salvation is according to God's sovereignty because true believers have been given faith to demonstrate that belief in God. So Jesus is being pretty sarcastic here. I hope you know in verse 24. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know the scriptures you claim to know. And you certainly don't believe the ones that you don't uh, believe. And you don't believe are inspired. Because your issue is you don't believe in the power of God. But Jesus gives a second sarcastic quip in verse 25. Notice your Bibles. Jesus goes on to say, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus assumes what the Bible clearly taught, even when they wouldn't. This is a note of sarcasm. Notice he says, for when they rise, not if they rise. This is not a matter of if. You want to talk about the resurrection, if it's true? No, let me just say it this way, Jesus says. When they rise, let's talk about it that way. This is a fact. When they rise from the dead, Jesus says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And then notice the end of verse 25, but are like angels in heaven. This is also sarcasm, because what did I say? According to Acts 23, verse 8, the Sadducees also denied angels. Well, the Sadducees didn't even bring up angels. No, but Jesus would to sarcastically quip against their ridiculous question at trying to embarrass him. Oh, by the way, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Uh, here, I'll tell you what it's like. It's like the angels in heaven. You know, the angels in heaven, the ones you deny. That statement in the middle of verse 25, when they rise from the dead, this statement, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, has caused consternation for many people. What exactly um, is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that there is no marriage in heaven? Is he saying that your relationship with your spouse will not be as intimate in heaven as it is on earth? How do we take this? Well, again, we want to be informed by scripture we want to know the scriptures and we want to know the power of god the power of god i believe jesus is telling the sadducees that in the afterlife our joy is not wrapped up in our earthly spouse and furthermore it's not wrapped up in marrying another because the spouse that we were married to didn't make it to heaven or it's not that uh, when we get to heaven it's going to be joyful because we were single on earth and when we get to heaven we'll be married jesus is saying no Present earthly realities don't serve as a sufficient basis for heavenly realities. And if we struggle believing that, it's because we don't believe in the power of God. His ability to make us joyful, even though our spouse in heaven isn't what they were to us on earth. So when Jesus says they neither marry nor are given in marriage, they're like angels in heaven, I take that at face value. I take that at face value. Because part of the purpose of marriage, you think back to Genesis chapter 1, is procreation, right? Be fruitful and multiply. That was a command of God. It was clear that um, the purpose of marriage was, was not only to propagate the world. That is a command. And those who refuse to have children, not because they can't medically, but those who refuse to have children when they can because they want to pursue some career or promote feminism or, or have a lot of material things are in rebellion against God even when they're non-Christians. Procreation is a command of God. But there's another purpose to procreation. Malachi 2.15, 
Did he not make them one? Talking about husband and wife. With a portion of the spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking and making them one? Malachi 2.15 says godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Understand your job as Christian parents is to produce godly offspring. You say, well, I can't do that. That's the point. It requires faith in God. And to bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But that's the goal of marriage. That was the reason God instituted marriage. Procreation and that these children not just be propagated as heathen, but they be worshipers of God, that they be a godly offspring. Why do I say all of that? I say all of that to say there will be no need for that in heaven. There's no need to get married and have children in heaven because we're not passing the truth down generationally where one generation dies and another rises up. We will all be the family of God and we will all love one another. We will all be one with Christ, right? And who is Christ? He's the bridegroom. The church is the bride. There's the marriage. The one people of God with Jesus. Now, you two may wonder the wonder of heaven apart from a marital union with your spouse. And I'll admit even myself struggles with this. I affirm it because the Bible teaches it. But it's difficult for me to think about the joy of heaven without my wife, without Corey, my spouse, us having that unique, special, privileged relationship. And I assume that for anyone who has a good marriage, they're going to struggle with what Jesus teaches here. That's why I always jokingly say it may be true that I won't be married to Corey in heaven, but every chance I get, I'm going to ask her to walk with me on the streets of gold so we can talk and reminisce. But something else about this second quip. Jesus says, we are going to be like angels in heaven. As I said, Jesus brings this up, not because they brought it up. He brings it up because he's being sarcastic. Sarcastically implying that even they did not know what their cherished Pentateuch taught. Because the Pentateuch also spoke about angels. Genesis 19 spoke about two angels that went to Sodom to rescue Lot. Do you Sadducees not believe that account? You say it's inspired. Or Genesis 28, the story of Jacob's ladder with angels ascending and descending on it. That's also in the Pentateuch. Are you telling me that Jacob didn't see angels, one of the patriarchs? You say you believe in the inspiration of the Pentateuch. I'm just telling you that there are angels in the Bible. Or Genesis 32, Jacob's fearful encounter with Esau, where the angels of God met him and comforted him. Now, I don't know that Jesus mentioned these specific verses, but I'm bringing these specific verses out to show you what was behind Jesus' thinking. He's being sarcastic. Why else would he bring angels up? He's bringing it up because the Pentateuch confirmed the existence of angels. Just like all of the Bible confirmed the resurrection. They are taking Deuteronomy 29 out of context, using it as a proof text and reductio ad absurdum argument, a reduction to the absurd to say, look, this is the law of God, but if you believe in the resurrection, it leads to a ridiculous conclusion that this poor woman isn't going to know who she's going to be married to in heaven. And Jesus says, no, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Well, that takes us to the third sarcastic quip in verses 26 and 27. Jesus has told them they're wrong in their assumption about the conundrum that the resurrection places us in regarding marriage. That's not true. Verse 24 and verse 25, he assumes the resurrection when they rise again does not involve marriage. 
at least not as we know it on earth. But now in 26, verse 26, he's giving proof. And he's giving proof from their cherished Pentateuch. Notice verse 26. Now let's just get to the point. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? This is sarcasm. Because they confirm the book of Moses, right? I mean, the first five books of the Bible, they believe to be inspired. That's only five books. That's not a lot to remember. Jesus says, uh, have you not read in the book of Moses? Y you know, the part of the Bible you say is actually the Bible. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, that is Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. This is sarcasm. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? I mean, I thought you were well-versed experts on the word of God. You just quoted to me Deuteronomy 25. You only have five books in your canon, and you're not familiar with this account in the book of Moses, a reference to the Pentateuch, this account that Moses experienced at the burning bush where he met God. Jesus says in this passage about the bush, before chapter and verse classification, all rabbis would refer to certain portions of scripture they were trying to call to the memory of their audience by something like this. You, you know the passage about the bush. Everyone there would have understood the passage was Exodus 3, or what later came to be identified as Exodus 3, verses 1 and following. And Jesus quotes the very words of God said to Moses in that burning bush experience. Jesus points out those words, how God spoke to him, verse 26, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. This is a question. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him and said, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now Jesus is drawing attention to a detail in this passage that upon a superficial reading of Exodus chapter 3, maybe you would miss. All good teachers of the word of God are able to point out details that are easily overlooked. Jesus was a master at this. He's drawing attention not to the bush that is burning, not to, to Moses. As unbelievable as that experience was for Moses and as unbelievable as the phenomenon of the burning bush was, that's not what Jesus points out. Notice he points out what God said to Moses. God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. What is he pointing to? Well, the title I am was the covenant keeping title of God who always keeps promises number one number two notice it says not just the God of Abraham but he says I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob he's the God of all three patriarchs and all their descendants by extension because he's the covenant God he is I am and at the beginning the covenant that he made with Abraham included Isaac and Jacob and all their descendants Genesis 17 7 I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you but the biggest point of all to see is that God says these words to Moses years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were already dead. It's in the present tense. God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. They had been dead a long time when God says this to Moses, when God confirms his covenantal promises 
God wouldn't speak in the present tense if there was no future blessings to come in a resurrected life. And so Jesus' point is that God's point to Moses in that experience was to show the Sadducees that death did not put an end to God's everlasting promises. Think of 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Or, or think of 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You know what God is telling Moses in the present tense? He's telling Moses... I did identify with Abram when I made that promise, but I'm still identifying with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Long after they're physically dead, I still identify with them because I'm a God of everlasting blessings. And their death does not end my promises. Their eternal blessings will be received. What sort of eternal blessings? Well, Jesus' point here, blessings like the resurrection. How else are you going to receive eternal rewards and blessings? How is God going to be a forever, everlasting, promise-keeping God if there's not an eternity? If, if there's not a resurrection? That's Jesus' point. He points out the present tense of God's words to Moses in a very familiar portion of Scripture. This is actually absolutely ingenious what Jesus does. And we know that's precisely what is on his mind because notice verse 27. Jesus concludes, He is not God of the dead, but of the living. The reason God could say to Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense is because they weren't actually dead. They had physically died, but their souls were with God. And God was not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, those patriarchs believed in the future dimensions of the kingdom. We read about that. Hebrews tells us, For by faith Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He, he wasn't ultimately just looking at the promised land. He was looking beyond that. Hebrews 11.10 or verse 13, all the patriarchs died in faith, the author of Hebrews says, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he's prepared for them a city. God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's the God of the living, not of the dead. They believed in a resurrection. All the patriarchs did. All the true saints in the Old Testament believed in it. So after giving all these sarcastic quips, Jesus says at the end of verse 27, how he began it, you are quite wrong. That's how he began it. In verse 24, is not this the reason you're wrong? That's one bookend. The second bookend, you are quite wrong. And look in between and read the books. Because when you study the Old Testament, when you study Exodus 3, when you study the Pentateuch, when you study the writings and the prophets, it is explicitly clear that there is a resurrection. See, people can be wrong sincerely and be sincerely wrong. And there are people all the time, whether denying the doctrine of the resurrection or some other doctrine, they're wrong, no matter how sincere they are. So what is this story about the selected quorum and the strategic question and the sarcastic quips teach us about Jesus' authority as it relates to the resurrection? Well, the authority of Jesus is found in the authority of the Scriptures. The scriptures confirm the resurrection. 
Jesus confirms the resurrection. Jesus said in John 10, 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. 2 Timothy 3 says that all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction, and training in righteousness. And in fact, Jesus derived from the resurrection, Jesus derived authority from the resurrection is the same power that raises us, Philippians 3, that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. And so how do we respond to those who doubt key doctrines, like the resurrection? Well, we need to remember that the Scriptures, first of all, inform our faith. And the Scriptures help prepare us to defend the faith. Peter tells us we need to be ready to make a defense. And when you look through the Bible, I'll just give you just two quick examples. The apostles always were prepared. Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The apostles were prepared to live and even die for the doctrine of the resurrection because it was so crucial to an understanding of the gospel. In Acts chapter 17, they say that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some mocked the apostle. In Acts chapter 17, that didn't stop the apostle. The scriptures taught it. He believed it. It informed his beliefs. It solidified his beliefs in a proper proclamation of the gospel. Also, I would say this, number two. The scriptures not only prepare us to defend the faith, but the scriptures also remove ignorance. There are all sorts of views on the resurrection. There are Gnostic sort of views even circulating in the church today that doesn't emphasize the importance of, for example, the body. But Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-two. so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that the body is for the Lord, the Lord is for the body. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is, why, that is why we have Christian funerals where the body of the dead reminds us of their future resurrection. We will see those saints again and we will see them as we saw them here yet in a perfected state. Not perishable, but imperishable. They'll be in a perfected state, a perfected state, that per, a perfected state that perfectly conforms to the image of Christ. In fact, Paul says, for we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's coming a day in which actually you and I as Christians will know each other better in heaven than we did here because we'll all be perfected. It'll be the perfect version of you and I. And so all of the positive traits will be heightened to perfection. We will reflect Christ and all the negative traits we won't even remember. 
they'll be gone. That's why we are to be patient with each other on this earth. There's, there's coming a day when we no longer will have to be patient. We no longer will have to forgive one another. We no longer will have to work hard at being compassionate and kind. Because we'll be perfect like Christ. The doctrine of the resurrection teaches that. And the doctrine of the resurrection reminds us that because the scriptures affirm it, and because the scriptures affirm there will be an empty tomb, that means there will be a full heaven. The empty tomb means there will be a full heaven. Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will raise our bodies and we will be forever with him. Old death, where is your victory? Old death, where is your sting? This is comforting. This would have been comforting to Mark's original readers who were under Neronian persecution. It's comforting to us today. What will our faith require of us? What sort of sacrifices will this generation of Christians have to make? Well, beloved, there's no greater encouragement you can have than the doctrine of the resurrection. Jesus is so clear in this passage that the doctrine of the resurrection is explicitly a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. And we are to trust it. We are to believe in it. We are to cling to it as our hope. So may we live as we will live forever. That's really how we should live. May we trust in the one who was raised. And may we long for our final resurrected glory. You see, our knowledge of what will be up there changes the way we live down here. It adds courage to our faith. It adds patience and kindness and love toward other saints who we know are not who they're actually going to be someday. They're going to be perfected and we'll enjoy one another forever. So as I said, the doctrine of the resurrection is explicitly important, a cardinal tenet of the Christian faith, but it's also immensely practical in encouraging our hearts and reminding us that we're passing through this world. We're but a vapor. Someday the Lord will call us home. First, our souls will be with him if, if we die before he returns, which is more than likely. But when he returns, we'll be resurrected, our souls united with our bodies in a perfect state like never before. That'll be such a glorious day. And all that is only made possible because of Christ through the gospel. To him be the glory. Let us pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for your scriptures, which are so explicitly clear. Christ in his teaching to the Sadducees, which on the one hand was sarcastic, but on another hand was, was a demonstration of love because he's telling them that what they believed was wrong. And he's giving to them arguments of, why they should believe in the resurrection. Lord, it's a reminder to us this morning, there are always reasons, Lord, that we can learn for why certain doctrines are true. Help us to learn to trust our Bibles. Help us to learn to trust the gospel more. Help us to live for eternity's sake. Help us not to store riches up here on earth where moth and rust destroy, but help us lay our treasures in heaven. Help us to be focused and steadfast in living the Christian life in a way that glorifies you, because there will be a future resurrection. There will be future rewards and opportunities in eternity future. Help us to live with that perspective. We thank you for your word. Bless us now as we close the service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. 
Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.